Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes or Death podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And this is a show that talks about bikepacking, adventuring, and the cool people who participate. And if you read the title, you know that today's guest is none other than Kurt Refsnyder. I caught up to him uh, after the Colorado Trail Race, which he won this year. And uh, by winning that, he actually became the first person to win the Triple Crown of Bikepacking. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to go into uh, detail. And we're going to talk about that. Um, yeah, when I caught up to him, he was just off of the Colorado Trail Race and he was camping and about to head out on a bikepacking trip. But he was gracious enough to give me some of his time. And I genuinely appreciated that and really enjoyed the conversation. He is quite an impressive human and athlete. I, I left the conversation feeling very inspired, uh, very grateful for the work that he's doing um, with bikepacking roots. Um, he has just done so much uh, for bikepackers and the community and is continuing continuing to do so. Um, and this is just a great episode. Uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to get to know Kurt a little bit better. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation about bikepacking routes. Uh, public lands is something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, being from Texas, only like 3% of our, our land is, is uh, public. Um, so it's something that I'm very aware of and very grateful for and really excited for the things that he's doing and grateful that he's championing uh, that over at Bikepacking Roots with his great team. Um, so yeah, we, I think we have a really great conversation and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, this is episode 25 of the Bikes or Death podcast, and I just wanted to take a moment and express my gratitude um, to everyone for listening, for supporting the show, for sending me messages, and, and just everything. I mean, when I started this, man, I started it in November of last year, so it hasn't even been a year yet. And when I started it, my goal was, or my thought was, I'll do one a month. So, you know, 12 a year. Um, we're sitting at 25 and it hasn't even been a year yet. So I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that, you know, this is absolutely a result of everybody who is doing all those things that I just said. I definitely feel, I feel the love, I feel the encouragement and it makes me want to go out and produce a great show and bring you all amazing guests and hopefully really in-depth and, uh, interesting and fun conversations. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. I don't know if I do that enough. Uh, a lot of times I feel like I'm just asking y'all to support me and not really, uh, saying thank you, but, um, I do appreciate it. I feel very fortunate to, uh, put, information out there that is important to me and have it so well received by a community that I really care about. And I feel, I feel lucky to be able to sit down with these people. I mean, uh, I get tons of messages from people saying how inspired they are and I am among you. I mean, I, I definitely, yeah, you can't, you can't talk to these people for hours and walk away and be like, eh, didn't move the needle for me. You know, I mean, I, I am definitely, inspired. I'm inspired to be outdoors more. I'm inspired to be on my bike more to find out what my potential is. Um, I'm inspired to just have fun and enjoy it and stay in the moment. And I'm inspired to continue to make a great podcast. <clears throat> so again, thank you. Um, it, it really means a lot. And I appreciate that, uh, that so many people are out there listening. Well, listen, if you do want to show me some love and you want to uh, support this show and the content that is coming to you for free, then uh, do me a favor and stick around to after the show. 
I use that opportunity to just talk to you about ways that you can support the show and also just maybe what's going on with Bikes for Death or anything else like that. So um, if you're interested in that, please stick around. For now, the only thing that I will ask is if you will head over to iTunes and leave a review. It is very helpful in uh, in, in getting exposure and helping people to find it. Um, so if you would, take a moment to go do that. Let your friends know. Share it on social media or whatever. And uh, just help me get the word out. If you like this content and you think it's valuable, then let's help spread that word. All right, that's all I got for you. Stick around till after the show if you want more. But for now, let's get to it. Just for fun, let, let's say you are at a fancy cocktail party and somebody asks you, what do you do? How do you respond? Man, well, first, I'd be so out of my element at a fancy cocktail. I know, that's why it's funny. <laughs> picturing per, picturing you out. like in a three-piece button down, you know, sipping on a cocktail. And then some guy asks you, he's like, so what do you do, Kurt? <laughs> well, oh, that, that is a hard question to answer at this point. Um, for the last, geez, what, six years, I guess, I'd say that I'm a professor. Um, I taught earth science like mostly geology and climate change at prescott college a little funky college in arizona and i actually just left that job um at the end of this past academic year so just a couple months ago and aside from that i've also been running a um, kind of mountain bike oriented endurance coaching business for going on four years now and uh co-founded bikepacking roots a nonprofit organization with Caitlin Boyle uh, two and a half years ago, three years ago, I guess. And so I'm the executive director of that. Uh, and then I spend a lot of time riding my bike and racing my bike and uh, doing everything that goes along with trying to put in some big performances um, from an athletic standpoint. So, yeah. yeah that, was a, that was a pretty good uh, elevator pitch. <laughs> you wrapped that up pretty well. And then I take a, a long sip of my cocktail to try to calm down a little bit. <laughs> well, well played. Well played. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I did want to touch on the, uh, the geology just real quick. My wife is actually a geologist. And um, so I've been telling her about you for years. Um, you know, we would go on trips and I would tell her about this professor that would take his students bikepacking and uh, to, to do it was geological field trips, wasn't it? Uh, via bike do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so that was a course. Um, I remember years ago when I was interviewing at Prescott College, I just I was in the process of finishing up my PhD work um, at University of Colorado, and this was a, a interesting little school that has a huge emphasis on experiential and field based learning. And so I was trying to think of new and innovative and kind of sexy courses to pitch in my interview. And one of one of the ones that came to mind was a course um, called something like Geology Through Bikepacking. And that was actually um, building off a course that the school already offered called, um, was it, I think, Rock Climbing and Geology. And oh, cool. that's one that's been around for a while. A friend of mine started that years ago, combining his climbing passions and his geology passions. Um, and so that was something that I pitched uh, in the interview and it went over quite well. And when I got the job, they were really excited to support the the development of that course. And so that was one that, uh, we put together a couple, 
I don't know, the second year I was teaching there, I guess, getting my feet in the ground a little bit and just trying to figure out how to actually get a group mm. of 10, 10 students or so outfitted with all the bikepacking gear they needed right. to get out for, for a series of trips. And that was a course that was also co-developed with Caitlin Boyle, who was teaching adventure education at ah. uh, Prescott College at the time. And so we collaborated on getting that course going and she kind of took the lead on the adventure ed component to the curriculum and I took the lead on the uh, geology side of the curriculum and we put together a sequence of like depending on the year but four usually four uh, two to four day trips in different areas of the Colorado Plateau wow. and so this, the... oh go ahead <laughs> oh yeah well I was just curious was this required I mean um this couldn't have been the only geology course that was offered, right? Because no, no. So right. Um, so this is this is a different. You have your like standard geology course, and then if you want to take the adventurous geology course, you go with Kurt and Caitlin. Is that kind exactly. of how it was set up? Okay. Yeah, and that was a. It was kind of an introductory level geology curriculum, and uh, there was definitely some field field experience required for students um, taking that course, just so that yeah. they were competent in a well, number of ways. Be besides just being, you know. <laughs> Uh, competent on the bike. They didn't need to be yeah. or mountain bikers by any sense. And we had quite a few students that took it with minimal mountain bike experience and did just fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I, it was, it was uh, I got a taste of that with, um, you know, Jared Foster, I believe. Yeah, you got out with his um, adventure media course. Yeah, yeah. So I got, I got a, a really good taste of kind of what it's like to be in your shoes. I mean, he took 16 uh, students uh, for five days and, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard. I think that was one of the most challenging courses that I've taught in quite a number of ways. Um, mm. and incredibly rewarding, but by the time it was wrapped up each year, it's like, Oh, all right, we made it. Everyone's intact. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> yeah, we didn't went, kill any students. No one got lost. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. So that was, that was really a, a pleasure to be able to teach and combine, um, my, my geology passions with, with the cycling world and get more, yeah. more people into bikepacking and their number of students that have gone on from that course to do some really cool things involved with, with the bike world, whether it's continuing bikepacking, one owns a bike shop in Durango now. Um, one did a bit of, um, bikepacking guiding in, um, Teton area in Idaho and Wyoming and geez, forget what else, but yeah, quite a number yeah, of them. That's amazing. Really cool things building on, on that course a bit. Well, you and, uh, you and Jared really, um, you don't, you don't, that's not inspirational to me because I have no desire to be a professor, but I am very <laughs> grateful that there are people like y'all that are kind of pushing the boundaries and finding uh, new and creative ways to not only teach, but really immerse the students in the environment, you know, and help, help to give a, a, a better appreciation and understanding for what you're talking about. And you get that through you know, living in it and experiencing it, you know, um, I, I read a book called last child in the woods, um, that was actually re uh, rec recommended to me by Jared Foster. And, uh, it said that, you know, nowadays kids are much more, um, aware of environmental issues and, uh, and, and, and just our world. I mean, they just have more information, but they're not as competent whenever it comes to actually going out of doors and, being competent, you know, and, and knowing what to do and stuff. So making that connection 
for me and I, I it has to be for you is is vitally important yeah, it, it completely is. And it's, this is something that I didn't really see until I started taking students out um, into those sorts of environments on my own as a professor. But yeah, those are the times when you're combining someone's uh, knowledge of something, like maybe just <clears throat> theoretical knowledge of just how a landscape evolved or certain environmental issues facing a particular area. And, you know, you can read about it, but you don't actually connect with that in any sort of emotional way until mm-hmm. you're actually out there and spending time in it and experiencing it and no uh, out there for, for days and nights at a time. And one of the really amazing things with those sorts of experiences is that that, that that is then a really effective way of creating advocates for particular places or particular issues um, yeah. is, is when, when people are actually developing those emotional connections in response to, to an experience. So that's, that's something that is so powerful. Right on. Are you, are you familiar with, or have you been to the Big Bend region in Texas? I'm quite familiar with it. I haven't spent any time out there aside from a couple of days in uh, the national park right. right in there years ago. Um, well, it was really, but... it was really neat to uh, be there with uh, Jared's students and stand inside the Solitario, um, which uh, is where North and South America collided. And mm-hmm. to stand in the middle of that and like, um, I, I shared that with the students and they were like, holy shit, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, you know, you're just like, I don't, it, it just, it, it clicks, man. It just, you have to like stand there and be like, this is where the world collided or, you know, these two land masses collided. Um, it's, it's powerful, really powerful. Um, all right, man. Well, I want to talk about some racing, dude. You are, uh, Let's get this straight. So you won the triple crown of bike packing. So first of all, just for anyone who doesn't know, what is the triple crown and how do you win it? Okay. Well, the triple crown was an idea that was thought up probably seven years ago or so. Um, kind of like the triple crown of hiking, which is the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. And there are lots of hikers that strive to do each of those in their lifetime or a few crazies try to do it all in a year, kind of bouncing from one to another based on season and what's passable and that sort of thing. Mm. But uh, the triple crown of bikepacking is the combination of Tour Divide, uh, the Arizona Trail Race, and the Colorado Trail Race. And so that that idea caught on uh, a few years back, and quite a few riders have tried to race each of those in a single year. And so that's what the Arizona trail up until next year, I guess has been in April and then tour divide in June and then Colorado trail race in the end of July. So they're packed, packed in pretty tightly there. And I had done all three of those, um, not in the same year, but in kind of over three or four year period back six, seven, eight years ago. And then this, this last year I went back and did the, uh, the Arizona trail race again, and managed to have a really good ride there and win that event and then this year won the colorado trail race for the first time and then i'd won tour divide back in well back in 2011 i guess it's been a while yeah, now it's 20, and, that, according so, to the internet it's 2011 <laughs> <laughs> it was like ages ago but yeah oh. apparently no one else had ever won each of those events and so there isn't really a category for winning the triple crown but it was a, a neat um realization that actually one of my um, 
one of the athletes I coach mentioned to me it's earlier in the, the spring. He's like, man, if you win CTR, you'll be the first person to have won the whole, like each of the triple crown events. And uh, I looked to it and sure enough, it's, uh, that seems to have been the case. So, Oh, that's neat. So you weren't even going for the triple crown. You were just, you were just racing the events that you like to race and just so happens that you won. Yeah, kinda. exactly. And yeah, I have the, I have so much admiration for the folks that do each of the triple crown races in one given year. Just no that doubt. is, it's so many really challenging <laughs> miles and you hit the Colorado trail race, which is, I think arguably the most physically demanding of, of the three of those probably. And you're hitting that on such with such tired legs, um, oh. from just having finished tour divide. I mean, for a lot of people, a matter of weeks before, and then you're jumping into another, uh, 500 miles with 75,000 feet of climbing or something like that crammed in. So, so it's, but next year, yeah, next year. So we're going to go tour divide to Colorado trail race and then AZT. Yeah. But I think that actually may be a little bit easier because there's more time in between the CTR and the AZT. Um, like there'll actually be, geez, all of August, or almost all of August and September and almost all of October for recovery. So for people who aren't familiar, they they're moving the AZT to October, right? Like late October. Yeah. Late October, late October instead of mid, mid April. So that's a big, yeah, that's a big change. Um, so the, the Colorado show race, that's one that I I believe that you've kind of, it's been a tough race for you in the past, um, yeah, it's, it's challenged me more than any other ultra that I've done repeatedly. Um, yeah. like Arizona trail for some reason, despite how hard it is, the, that one has, has usually come pretty smoothly for me. Um, even, even though it, every time it's dang hard, um, <laughs> but the Colorado trail race, like I, I lived in Boulder for six years while I was in grad school. And so, you know, the start of the Colorado trail on the Denver end is just like a 40 minute drive away. So that was one that was sort of a backyard thing and seemed like I should just be able to get it done because it was in <laughs> eight. And I, I tried what twice, I guess, while I was living in Boulder to time trial it, um, just based on how it fit into my summer schedule and neither time had anything remotely of a good ride. Like both, both times blowing up pretty early on. Um, like morning two kind of thing. And then I moved to Arizona, time trialed it again and came back. Let's see, flew back up here and then managed to get halfway through on really fast pace. And then was like, you know, I've never even seen almost all of the second half of this trail, the San Juan mountains and the racing mentality and drive just wasn't there. And so I backed Hmm. off and just rode fast all day and slept all night and still finished in under six days. But oh, wow. um, really enjoyed the the San Juan experience, but it really wasn't um, wasn't the race uh, race ride that I wanted. Right. And then I went back, what two other times I guess that it started in Durango. And one year my knee just acted up um, on basically the end of the first day. I have an old old injury from um, a trip riding a bunch of the 14 years in Colorado and had a. Uh, a I read about that on Bikepacking.com, I believe. Yeah, that was that was a exhausting endeavor um but yes that (laughs) that knee thing acted up uh two years ago i guess on the first day and i bailed like what 15 hours in or something like that and two years before that just all of the other things in life that take energy had just been a little bit too intense 
that that summer and you know i showed up really excited to race but then on the second morning you know i had no ambition i didn't have the the drive i just felt exhausted um all around physically and mentally and all sorts of little overuse things were acting up at the same time and so that one i bailed um second morning so yeah definitely okay yeah go ahead well, I just, I'm thinking as you're talking and, and I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the podcast, but I legitimately don't understand how you, how you do it, like how you find the time to train, how you find the time to coach and profess and run bikepacking routes. And I mean, how is that? You can't like talking to you. You're, you're like, I think that was this year. And I think I've done it two times. I mean, you've done so much stuff. You can't even remember everything you've done. Like <laughs> it, does, it does run together in certain ways, more in the time aspect of like, well, I can remember the experience, but when did uh, that? Yeah. Happen? Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Know? you. <laughs> um, no, it's definitely been a really busy few, few years. I think being a grad student and racing really helped me learn how to almost compartmentalize things and just, you know, devote certain amounts of time to this and that. Um, and for the first, I don't know, first four or five years I was in grad school, I was chasing, um, the like UCI points on the national cyclocross circuit. And so like the complete opposite end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. from ultra racing. And so I spent a ton of time flying all over the country and driving to these big races, um, as a grad student and cross was awesome because you could be, I mean, I was racing at a really high level training, like 12 hours a week, which was pretty, pretty good fit for being a grad student. And then I kind of got tired of literally racing in circles again and again and again. Um, and the, the ultra very, very young ultra scene, um, captured my attention, which at that point was basically the great divide race, the predecessor to tour divide and uh, an event in Western Colorado called the grand loop. And those both caught my attention back in 2000. Seven, how, did, how did that get on your radar at that time? Do you remember? Do you remember when you first learned about oh, bikepacking? I don't even, no, I don't even know. Um, I think I knew a couple riders in Boulder who had done the Cocopelli Trail race, which was mm-hmm. just a, a single day underground event on on the Cocopelli Trail, which is like 140 miles or so. Um, but the Grand Loop uses some of that same trail. And so somehow through that, I just caught wind of that event mm-hmm. and looked into it and was like, whoa, this is, this is wild. How, how do yeah, you're like, this? you're like, and, I'm tired of doing cross. So I think I'll just do the complete opposite <laughs> thing and yep, that'll and, be good. <laughs> and that's what happened. And so, yeah, one that, that year I did the grand loop swore I'd never do anything like that again. Cause it was so hard. And then the next year did the Arizona trail 300 and tour divide. And so then for a few years there, I was training just a completely pathetic way of uh, let's just ride as many miles as possible. And that's gotta be the way to get fast for, um, ultras. And it kind of worked, but in the end, it just basically wore me out most of the time. Mm. And I never really felt good on the bike and I never really felt good off the bike. Mm. And there were a couple of years there that I rode literally like over a thousand hours, which was like an eighth wow. of the, you do the math for how much yeah. time. Yeah. And I, I have no clue how that was possible or how my body survived, um, <laughs> all that. And so that, learning from that kind of led into doing a lot more research into the, the realm of, um, just how, how people might go about training more effectively for ultras. And there's so little science that's been done on Mm, at least bike specific ultras. There's quite a bit that's been done in the running realm and in the realm of these crazy triathlons that are pretty popular in Europe. 
um, that are really easy to just like collect data from people, blood samples and urine samples and all that stuff during the event. But yeah, so I got, got more interested in that and really refined my training strategy a lot over the years. And so felt like the last, last three years as things have been really busy with different, different endeavors, I've been training fewer hours than ever before probably, but been been much more effective training and my results have been way better. My body's been way happier. So it's, yeah, yeah, both, both getting smarter and getting uh, a lot more experience in yeah, refining. Yeah. 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 I'm sure it hasn't been a perfectly smooth process, but you've been at it for <laughs> a long time. And through that, you're somehow at this level. Um, yeah. and I, I want to get into the, the ultra coaching. Um, but, and because there's some really juicy stuff or some interesting things we can talk about there, but before we do, um, can you, can you walk us through your CTR this year? I mean, you're fresh off of it. I know that's kind of a big question, but, uh, I mean, what is it like to win a race like that, to go that hard, to not sleep on such a rugged trail? I mean, can you kind of just take us through your experience from this year's, uh, CTR? Yeah. Um, so going, going into it, I had a few, uh, few goals that were really at the front of my, my mind. Um, one was simply to, to have a smooth race ride and finish. So not even necessarily set records, win anything like that. But after struggling on that route so many times, I really just, I wanted to make it through in race mode the the whole time. Uh, and then beyond that, I did want to win. That's always that's always a goal for me um, in these races. And this year, there was a tremendous amount of snow still on the route in the weeks leading up to the the race. And so we didn't even know there was very little information from the the higher elevations in the San Juans just about what what to expect there for snow. And so it was looking like the chasing records was just not even going to be in the, in the cards um, this time around because of because of all that snow and how much hiking there would be to get through it. So. That was that was something that really from from the outset wasn't a goal itself um, to try to chase either Neil Belchenko's record on there or Jesse Jacobite, who has the um, record in the, the eastbound direction, which is what we were doing this year. So that was actually a little bit of a relief to just not be having to put so much focus on mm. how fast you need to go to keep up with certain splits or to be ahead of certain splits. And then I also really just wanted to have fun out there. It's such an amazing trail and I love the landscapes in Colorado so much. And the, the fact that you're basically riding from the, the edge of the Colorado plateau to the edge of the great plains is pretty powerful. And so I wanted to be able to actually absorb that and, and enjoy it while I was out there. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's nice to say, but how do you actually have fun when you're <laughs> sleep deprived? And I mean, I, you know, legitimately like yeah, I, no, I that, respect that, and I appreciate that you are having fun. I think that's important. But yeah, what, what does that look like to you? What is fun? That's, you know? that's something that really like being able to achieve that has really, uh, developed for me in the last, just the last three years, I guess that you, for me personally, I need to be riding very much within myself, within my abilities, within what my body can sustain. And so it's so easy in these races to go too hard on day one and to fall behind on self-care, on nutrition, on that sort of thing. And just by like the second day, feel like crap and you're already in a hole. And if you're in that place, it's going to be so hard to recover and get your mind back to being able to enjoy where you are versus just like 
surviving and continuing to move forward. And so being really cognizant of just like where, where that, where, where too hard is, where, where that mm. threshold is, um, has been something I've been really trying to, to carefully identify over the years. And yeah. that I've learned a lot from doing much shorter races and time trials where I do push limits in ways that maybe I wouldn't want to in a bigger event like this, right. just to find where those are so that I can actually make sure I don't get to that point um, when, when it really counts. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And something I think about as well, I always, you know, whenever I'm riding, I'm always trying to tell myself, give everything that you can, but not overextend yourself, you know, like, yep. don't, don't go too far. But that finding that point, you know, where you can go as hard as you need to, but still, you know, leave a little bit to where you don't bonk or you don't, you know, blow something out or whatever. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's something I focus on too. And it's, 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 I'm guessing it, well, it's an ever evolving uh, needle that you're chasing. Oh, it, it totally is. Yeah. And it depends on so many external things too, like what the weather's doing and yeah. what, what day you're on in one of these races. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're that threshold on day one is going to be really different from the threshold on day three. And right. like physiologically, it's, it's even different things that are controlling that threshold, um, as a race wears on. But cool. yeah, so that's, that's a big part of it for me yeah. and so um the and what else and i guess i was i was really excited going into this race i had a brand new race bike set up um this year or just that i gotten maybe a month before the race i hadn't even had it that long it was the new pivot uh, mach 4 sl so it's mm. a bike that was actually designed for world cup cross-country racing oh, and okay. um the a couple days after it was launched uh, my friend from who lives in Prescott, also Chloe Woodruff, who races the World Cup circuit, won World Cup short track on it. And so I had that same bike set up quite differently from hers, but <laughs> with ultra racing in mind. And I had done the Cocopelli trail on it a few weeks prior, or maybe a month prior, and was just blown away at how, how fast it was. And so I was really excited to race that bike as well. And so just having that eagerness for the, the tool that's going to help meet some goals was right was really just good. just having that new bike stoke you know yeah. seeing how it's going to perform and you're yep. out there riding you're like dude this thing shreds you know yeah yeah uh that's so a, then that's cool that you still get that feeling i'm glad to oh, hear that I, yeah it's i've been racing bikes since i was what eighth grade i guess in yeah. one capacity or another and yeah that that stoke never never has faded with the awesome new bike that's cool uh, man yeah, so the race started uh, 4 a.m., I guess, kind of obscenely early. Uh, and we started in the Durango end this year at actually a former student's bike shop in, in Durango, Belarusian. And we launched from there and pretty much immediately after getting to the trailhead, which is about a 30-minute pedal from the shop, you go up and climb for more or less 6,000 feet, I guess. There's a little 1,000-foot descent in the middle of that. But starts off incredibly challenging like that and you get up to over over 11,000 feet I think within a few hours and so it's so easy to dig yourself into a hole just in those first few hours and then the riding doesn't really get notably easier for the rest of that day and you just get slightly more fatigued and it you know it's it's a really hard way to start a race and so that that whole day I was just trying to not dig too deep and was uh, kind of close with, with last year's winner, Time and Fish from, from New Mexico for, uh, basically that whole climb. And then 
we ended up separated by just like 10 or 15 minutes most of the rest of that afternoon until getting to Silverton, which is the first resupply point. And the second resupply point is like close to two days past that. And so you need to leave Silverton with, God, I think I had 14,000 calories that I was carrying, which is so much food to both find yeah. in a little store, like what sounds good, what's going to For... sound good, and how do you make that add up to 14,000 <laughs> calories? And then where do you put it all on oh a bike? That's, um, that's a, yeah. big, just a big volume. And... 7,000, so that was 7,000 calories per day, huh? Uh, Roughly? Yes, so. Yeah, 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 I end up, I try to eat like 300 to 350 calories an hour is is what I go off. So okay. I got enough food for that, and I definitely didn't eat eat as much as I should have been with just the effects yeah, of, of high altitude especially. Okay, um, yeah. It doesn't sound that, like it's enough food to really give your body everything it needs, but I guess space has got to be a limiting factor. Well, it is. And I like I actually plan my 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 volume of, of what I could carry based on that one resupply to make sure that I did have space to carry as much as I needed. Um, and in in lots of other races I've done in the past that basically the 350 calorie an hour mark is the maximum that my body is willing to take in and can process. Mm, yeah. And it's definitely not enough to like replenish all the calories you're burning. Um, so you're, you're gradually, but it's good enough for like a short race. It'll sustain you to just get it's, to the end and then you can it, eat yeah, everything. It yeah. Yep. Um, gotcha. and a lot, there's quite a few riders that get through races like this, taking in only like an average of probably 200 calories an hour. And I don't know how their bodies are able to do it, but from, from all the folks I've, I've talked to, that really does seem surprisingly common. Hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so that first, first day, you know, I got to Silverton had a blast in, in that part of the San Juans, the first part of the San Juan mountains and got to Silverton and met kind of a smaller goal of getting there, still feeling okay. And definitely didn't feel like, a, <laughs> Oh man, that was hard. And you know, 80 miles and I don't know how many, it's probably 12,000 feet, 14,000 feet of climbing in that first oh, bit. Um, and then from there, it's just this really gets into this gnarly remote stretch of of the San Juans that had a lot of snow, just big, big piles every quarter mile, every half mile that you had to be off the bike and trudging through and sliding around in a bit. And you're up at 12 to 13,000 feet for a lot of it. So it's kind of obscenely high. Uh, and Timon and I ended up pushing through most of that together in the dark that first night. And then he continued on uh, a little bit farther. I wanted to stop and sleep after what it was like a 22 hour first push. So I slept mm. for about an hour up at 12 and a half thousand feet on this nice little dry spot of tundra and then continued on. Uh, what and the next what does sleep look like for you? Uh, that, uh, that, you know, I mean, I, I find that people that are very good at ultras are very good at time management. It has to be a top priority. So, you know, what was your sleep? I mean, you got to be efficient, get, get all your stuff out, sleep, and then get up and go again. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. I had a, a pretty simple sleep setup, just a, um, super thin foam pad. Uh, uh, I brought just an emergency bivy, one of those foil bivvies for this mm. one because there was virtually no rain in the forecast and then, a, a lightweight down quilt. And so I didn't even, I don't even think I pulled the bivy out that first night cause there was no dew or anything up there. Um, and yeah, I just pulled all that out, got in it, changed out of my shorts and ate a giant burrito and a couple of granola bars and then fell asleep for an hour. And then as soon as my alarm went off, packed everything up in just a few minutes and put on an extra layer and started, well, 
at that point, just kind of walked away from there because at twelve and a half thousand feet, <laughs> anything that goes up very steeply at all is just not worth trying to ride. Um, when your uh, when your alarm goes off, what's going through your head? Are you like, oh, it, are you it, fired it, up and ready to get going, or what? It varies so widely in these events. Like I think that that time when my alarm went off, I woke up and was like, cool, I'm up here. And was just kind of excited to be where I was nice. and to traverse the next section, which is really, it's, I mean, it's otherworldly at night and there was no moon. So it was just a kind of eerie, eerie thing to be up on the continental divide at over 12,000 feet, getting up to 13,000 and, you know, just seeing little bits of light and just little, little snippets of landscape here and there. And you're kind of in your own, own fog almost. But yeah. I was, yeah, so I was excited for that. Other times I I've awakened races like, oh, God, I gotta do another day. Pretty quickly, my mood turns around, but that 20, 30 minutes can be really challenging just because of how achy everything might be or how your mouth just hurts from having been eating food continuously for days. <laughs> that can, you know, just these weird little things that make you uncomfortable. Right. Uh, yeah, interesting. So you are human. Good. Oh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then that, yeah, that morning I felt actually pretty good for a few hours. And then by the time the sun came up, my body was like, okay, that was actually a lot of miles and elevation. And I hit a paved road and my body just kind of fell apart temporarily and motivation disappeared and felt, felt like I had just done what I was trying to avoid doing, which was going way too hard for the first, uh, first 30 hours or whatever. But at that point you're basically done with the San Juans. You have a little bit of pavement, like five miles of pavement, and then about God, probably five hours of dirt road that definitely has climbing on it, but it's smooth. You can kind of back off and relax a little bit mm. on it. And so it took a little while to get my head into a, a mind space of just like, okay, use this as recovery, back off a bit. It's going to get harder um, again once you get back to trail. And I was right. struggling that I just, I didn't have any motivation for riding dirt road apparently. And so I had to just... <laughs> get my head to focus on the fact that there was more trail coming and that it would be fun once I got there. Hmm. So that was, that was definitely the lowest point of the whole race was that, that morning, like right around sunrise. And then well, and I, what do you do mentally whenever you get in funks like that? I mean, do you, do you play games with your head? Do you sing? Do you, I mean, some people do yeah, you bike dances. Do I mean, like, I put some music in and was listening to that. Um, and yeah, music's a good one. Yeah, I, I pulled out my phone just to look and see. Timon was ahead of me at that point, so I pulled out my phone to see where where he was, and I didn't have any enough service to actually see the tracker, so I had no idea where anyone was. Um, but I texted um, Caitlin, who's my best friend and is a very experienced ultra racer herself, and I've coached her for a while through some pretty hard times. And texted her, I was like, I just have no motivation for anything east of here. And she replied with just the same, <laughs> amusingly the same advice and same mantras I've given her in the past. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I should have remembered that. And <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, once, once I heard that, I was able to turn things around or start turning mm -hmm. things around. Yeah. And then unexpectedly, I saw Timon up ahead and he was just sitting at um, the turn onto the dirt road, leaning on the, um, like the winter closure gate. And I rolled up to him and he was looking pretty forlorn and apparently he had been having some strange um heart or like chest pains mm. that early that morning after he had continued on and so he um he has a history of a valve heart valve issue apparently and so he decided it 
wise to just call his race then and descend into Lake City, which was definitely, I mean, something wrong with your heart or lungs or, you know, that that level. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's not worth pushing on, especially in in that kind of another day. Yeah, exactly. So he he wished me luck and congratulated me on riding really strongly, which was really nice to hear from him. And then I continued on and then I was in a, a little bit of a funk, just like feeling really disappointed and sad for him, um, having been in his shoes and not in having like potential heart issues, but just being right. in that setting where your body is rebelling in one way or another. And just, it's, it's not right to go on in these races. And that's, that's hard to, hard to work through sometimes. So, um, rode for a few hours, really reflecting on that. And it was coincidentally also where I had bailed out once a few years prior. So <laughs> it was, yeah, just getting, just having getting some emotions. Yeah. Yep. And then early that afternoon, I got back to single track, which was the beginning of the Sergeant's Mesa section of the route, which is kind of horrendously rocky and pretty rugged. And it really is like a lot of the stuff that I was training on in Arizona. And so I was actually really excited to get on that, even though it's, you know, 25 miles or 30 miles of really, really rocky riding. Um, I was I was excited. And so I had a really good time that that afternoon and that evening on that. And was it was strangely busy up there also with through hikers it was like the front of the pulse of mm. hikers going in the denver to durango direction so despite it being a really kind of remote area not close to anything it felt busy uh, <laughs> up and so that was that was just different yeah and that night slept way up high um almost to the monarch crest trail so getting Getting close to the end of where the trail is especially hard and getting to where it's just less hard. Um, the first half of the route in that direction is just pretty, uh, pretty over the top challenging, but slept for what, I guess an hour and a half that night. Just found a little dry spot under a, a tree after a storm went through and again, ate a bunch of food, slept for a little bit, got up rolling pretty quickly again and was it still had like three hours until dawn or something like that. And got to ride the the Monarch Crest section, which is definitely one of the more popular high elevation trails in the state. And so yeah. it's just interesting to be riding that at like 3 a.m. when it's completely deserted. <laughs> and, you know, it's covered in bike tracks and moto tracks from all the use it sees. But, you know, no one else anywhere around. And then that day got past the halfway point. You get down into the Arkansas Valley through Buena Vista. And the trail gets so much more rideable. And it's I don't want to quite use the word mellow, but compared to everything else, it feels mellow. Uh, And just that was a huge milestone getting out of the San Juans, getting through the Swatch range. And then, you know, it actually starts to feel like you're fairly close to to the Denver end of the trail. Um, But that night things started to fall apart a little bit. And I just I couldn't stay awake on the the bit of paved road um, getting around the Leadville area and ended up crashing there not literally crashing but crashing on my sleeping pad (laughs) oh god yeah yeah yeah. i always have to make that distinction did you did you physically crash or did you like what crash did we do today um what 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 do you use um i mean i know a lot of people use uh caffeine pills i mean do you do you use anything to help you stay awake or do you just yeah yeah i do i do carry some caffeine pills and i try to limit myself to no more than two in a day basically or two in a 24-hour period which would be i don't know what that ends up being like four strong cups of coffee or something like that so yeah i I try to not use too much of it uh it can be definitely be hard on your stomach 
Um, right. If you use too much and just you, you get all jittery and strung out if, if you do take too much, especially in a short amount of time. Um, and from my tour divide days years ago, I had a, a rule for myself that if I took a caffeine pill and nothing happened and I took another one and nothing happened, then I had to stop and sleep. Like that mm. was just this personal rule that I was, if I was that tired, it wasn't worth riding. Like it yeah. wasn't going to go well. Yeah. You gotta, um, have, you gotta know your limits and, uh, and be comfortable you know, yep. with, with those decisions. And it's good to know that stuff going into it, you know, and it, not, oh, yeah, not so making it. those decisions like on day four or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, and your brain is so exhausted that you can't even necessarily trust the decision that it's making to be yes. the bestest. Yeah. Yeah. So I slept for, I think then I slept for two hours. Um, my lead at that point was up to like seven hours over second place. And so I definitely backed off the pace that, um, that afternoon. And from where were you with the, uh, with the record, were you tracking the record as well? Or were you just uh, mostly focused on winning? I think at that point I was probably five hours off record pace, maybe six. Um, cause the San Juans definitely took about, I don't know, three to four hours longer than normal, I think because of the snow that was in them. And then I was for a little while, I tracked my pace compared to Jesse's and it was just at the point that like it would have taken all of my focus and um, basically speed to match his pace. And like that seemed challenging enough that second day. And if I was to actually try to claw time back on it, that would have like, I know that would have just dug me into a hole and I don't think I could have maintained the the pace I would have needed to. Um, I know I couldn't have to yeah. all the way to dead. And so I made the decision, like, it's just, you know, I love chasing records and this, that wasn't the time to do that. Jesse's ride was just too dang fast, um, to, to be able to pull time back on. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, so, so that was, that wasn't in my mind anymore. And so at that point it was just staying in the lead and having a a seven hour lead or whatever it was at that point felt really comfortable. Yeah. So slept a tiny bit longer and just, I, you know, wasn't, wasn't moving quite as efficiently, um, stop to eat a little bit more regularly just to make sure that I didn't fall behind on calories and that helps you stay a little happier and all that. So, um, yeah. And then once you, once you have a seven hour lead, I've never had a seven hour lead. I've never (laughs) had a lead in anything, but I can, I I would think that if I was in that position that now you just want to, I mean, you still want to win, but it's like, okay, well, I want to be a little more careful. I want to make sure I'm taking care of myself. I don't want something stupid or exactly. unfortunate to be the reason that I don't win, you know? I mean, yeah. so totally. And that, that also gave me the opportunity to stop focusing on being, being as efficient and fast as possible and to just back off a little bit. And right. if you're not focused on pushing steadily the entire time, it's a little easier to just enjoy where you are yeah. and to look well, it's around. It's not lazy. It's just, it's, to me, it's smart. It's intelligent yeah. racing. You know, yep. you're, you're, you're the shift focus. I worked my ass off to get here and now I'm going to protect it by making good and smart yeah. decisions. Yep, exactly. And it was also really cool to be able to stop and talk to other hikers and bike packers a little bit and oh, you know, sure. not feel like, Oh, this is costing me time, but <laughs> then be like, Oh, cool. It's actually really neat to hear just, even if it's only for a minute or two, hear a tiny bit of their story and how their, their experience out here has been so far. Well, shit, Uh-oh. man, you should have called me. I would have uh, come up and interviewed you <laughs> on day four and, you know, just on the trail there. We would have just had a nice little chat. <laughs> Could have been pretty fun. Um, oh, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but. Yeah, that, that third morning actually was really hard also. I was up in the Leadville area, a little north of Leadville, and it was 
like temperatures were down right around freezing and all the bushes were wet. And so I was getting soaked from those and cold and just couldn't get my body into a rhythm after I slept and my butt hurt and, you know, just all the little things kind of bothering me. And so it wasn't until a little bit after sunrise that when I was getting up to tree line again, that everything finally kind of clicked back together. It was like, okay, cool. Body's ready to go again. And had super fun time up in that section of Alpine um, over Searle and Kokomo passes where you're just, I don't know, maybe five miles up, up above tree line and just stunning scenery. And then descended down to Copper, the ski area there, and ended up slicing a sidewall literally under the chairlift within sight of the base area. And I was just kind of out in the, the rubble on the service road um, as some hikers were coming up the road. So I moved over to, to let them by and hit something sharp. And I'm like standing there looking at it next to my bike. Like, oh, should I stop and stitch it up? Put a tube in? It's kind of annoyed. And I turn around and look to my left and down. And there's literally a guy rolling rental bikes out of a shop at the start of the day. It was like 9 a.m. on the dot. And so I was like, huh, there's a bike shop right there. Cool. And so I just, I walked down to that, um, which took maybe four minutes (laughs) and went in and they didn't have any 29er tires. And it's like, damn. And then what? the guy's like, well, you could, you could go to the other shop. It's like, there's another shop here. And he just like ducks down and points out the window. And just across the little um, brick base air, brick lined base area, there was another bike shop. And so uh... I head out and start walking <laughs> that. And then I hear a woman call out, hey, I know you. And it was Rose Grant, who is one of Pivot's pro, um, pro riders. And she came over and was like, whoa, do you need a tire? I've got a whole bunch of tires in my car. <laughs> and she's also sponsored by Maxis and no tubes. And so um, I'm like thinking like, you know, I kind of know you, so I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't actually take anything. And all she had also were Maxis Aspens, which I've used in ultras before. And I don't think I'd want to use on the Colorado trail um, because they're just such a, a lightweight tire. And yeah. so it's like, you know, I'm going to go in the shop and just see if they can help. Um, and she's like, okay, let me know if I can help. And so I went in the shop and they had 29 or tire and, the guy there was able to um, get it swapped out pretty fast. And so, I mean, like within 25 minutes of slicing a sidewall, I had a new tire and it was rolling. That's some sweet trail magic. It was, yeah. I feel like I used up all my trail karma in that one experience. Um, yeah, good. But I'm not going to question it. So, <laughs> yeah, got got rolling again. Climbed over the next couple mountain ranges, which are kind of the last challenging passes. And I felt great getting over those and got into South park that, that night and continue to feel pretty good. You know, that having backed off a little bit helped help just how my legs felt so much and slept for a luxurious two hours that or two and a half hours that night. Um, which I was starting to get just these little, not really hallucinations, but when you, when your eyes first notice something and focus on it, what immediately would register in my brain wasn't actually what it was like seeing a stump, mm. but at first thinking it's like a hiker sitting down mm. or just little things like that, like mis misidentifying things initially. Yeah. And I know for me, that's a sign that if I have another night, that's really, really low on sleep, then the next day things are going to be much worse from a kind of neurological perspective or from a <laughs> cognitive perspective. And that's some, somewhere I did not want to go in this. There was no reason to. And it's like, I just, I don't like to put my body through that. And so I slept a little bit longer that night, which I probably should have slept a little bit longer yet. Um, but then the last day was 
much more mellow riding, some really beautiful dirt road um, sections to get around the last of the wilderness areas on the trail. And then really flowy single track most of the way back to Denver for another, I guess, the last 40 miles or so. And got into Denver in late afternoon, just as there were some storms building. And so I missed those and rolled into the the trailhead where the, the CT finishes. And there were like a dozen people there waiting and cheering for me. And I didn't really know any of them um, except oh, wow. for one. And it was super cool to have that because I've finished so many ultras to like an empty parking lot, except mm-hmm. my car is there. Or yeah. like I finished the year I won Tour Divide. I got to the border at like 5 a.m. And there was nobody there. It was just completely deserted. And it was like a huge relief to be done and really anticlimactic. That Like, okay, yeah. cool. I'm here. I won. I think I'm just going to lay down and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Throw a party so, for yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is really odd to like put yourself through something so hard and know that there's a lot of people out there watching and cheering you on and supporting you mm. kind of remotely because of the the tracking in these yeah. races. But then to get to the actual end and and it just you know that's it. There's no one there, nothing at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the end of the CT to have all those people there and there's um, one one young boy who had a plate with a few um, like peach cobbler muffins that his mom had made that he came up and sheepishly gave to me and they were amazing. Um, yeah. And so it was just really cool to be able to just stand around and hang out with those people. And do, do you think that's just, do you think that speaks to like the growing popularity? I mean, you've been in it a, a long time, so I'm kind of curious actually to get your perspective between where bike packing is and it's, you know, quote unquote popularity, but you know, while you're talking about, um, finishing and, and no one's there, like bikepacking has got to be one of the most, if not the most physically challenging things you can do. I mean, maybe ultra running is, is right there, but I mean, you're talking about amazing yeah. human feats and to get done and there be no one there. I mean, mo- most people like in everyday life have no clue that people are doing what, what you're doing, you know, yeah. it's crazy. So um, yeah, where, where do you think we're at with bike packing as, as in, you know, as it relates to popularity? Yeah. I mean, the awareness of, of bike packing in general, not, um, not necessarily the racing side of it, but just as a, a, a recreational pursuit is obviously bigger than ever, but there still are so many people. And like, it's kind of shocking when, when I'm talking to like national forest service, um, like supervisors or people at a pretty high level in a particular forest, and they've never heard of bike packing. It's like, hmm, there are actually quite a few people like it's a a new user group in your land, Mm -hmm. but you don't you're not aware of it in the cycling world. It's a different story that, you know, Salsa was really the first bigger company to um, do a lot to support um, and to build uh, the bikepacking community. And within a few years of of them becoming really successful at that, so many other companies were like, oh, cool adventure. That's actually a really neat, neat realm in the the bike pack or in the cycling world that seems to be growing. Maybe we can do something with that. And so pretty quickly, there were a tremendous number of big companies supporting that and giving it so much more visibility. And I remember years ago when there's, you know, a, a one article about bike packing in one of the magazines, I think it was mountain flyer and then bike had something. And then pretty quickly it was, you know, each issue of most bigger bike magazines or mountain bike magazines had something about bike packing. So the visibility has just grown tremendously um, within the cycling world and definitely is, but not necessarily at the same rate um, outside of that community. 
And then the racing side of things definitely is still growing in popularity, but like tour divide participation really has leveled off. Um, and even, even races like the CTR, like just in the last few years, they've basically reached their limit of 74 participants. Um, and Arizona trail race kind of same thing approached its limit, but not really overflowing. So mm. the, well, that's only the one big, aspect, right? Yeah. But there also are a lot of newer, um, races that are probably never going to be as popular as those, but, um, showing up in different regions of, of the country that haven't had as many races in the past. And I think what we're seeing is many more races internationally, um, appearing as, as right. the, like, so it's kind of diluting and there's more people I, yeah. just in, just spread out, you know? Yeah. Diluting, but not like absolutely no negative connotation with that. It's Correct. Just, there's yeah more more opportunity for people that do want to race. That's a um, way to say it. <laughs> to participate in different styles of races. There's you know, in Australia or I guess New Zealand mainly the the style that you race all day and then you have to stop and sleep for a while at night. And other races like the Silk Mountain Road Race that just happened that there's actually you know a promoter and doing a fair bit to um, organize the race and have support and you know there's an entry fee and all of that. So mm. there's definitely some commercialization going on with that style of racing. Yeah, well, listen, man, seriously, uh, congratulations on the Colorado Trail and the Triple Crown. It's, I mean, you're kind of a badass. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt it felt so rewarding to finally have a smooth ride on this CT and to, to actually have been able to enjoy so much of it. And then um, that was, I think the last, there have been a few few different routes that have challenged me a little bit more like that Cocopelli trail was another one um and this year i got got those two had had really nice rides on both of those and so that that kind of those were the big big things left on my long-term kind of racing to-do list um for uh for ones that hadn't gone the way i wanted in the past so now it's now it's getting creative and thinking about some others that challenge me in other ways and so about the wild wild west route or the wild wild west the wild west route i just did a will smith in there (laughs) (laughs) that's one oh man that's i have no desire at this point to do races that are weeks to do any kind of effort that's weeks long at that level um because it's it's just so demanding on the body and i'm i'm not i don't want to put my body through that at this point so i'm really enjoying the shorter like two to two to five day range, something like that, right. that don't take so long to recover from and don't dig you into as deep of a hole. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, I'm gonna so go you're, you're going to leave the wild west for somebody else. Well, yeah. And the, the other complication is that's one that we're not, we're actually d- actively discouraging people from racing. Oh, at least. good. Okay. Well, let's talk about that then. Yeah. So that wild west route was, uh, a project of bikepacking routes that we've been working on for, well, actually, since before the organization launched formally, and it was very much inspired by the success and popularity of um, Adventure Cycling's Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, which is 20 years old now. It's inspired so many people. It's far and away the most well-known um, and ridden uh, bikepacking route in the world. And there's been so much demand for another route like that, that there's a lot of people that have ridden that route once or twice or three times and want something else of similar kind of similar style similar scale and so we set out to divide or to create a another route like that to the west of the great divide route which is through arizona utah idaho and corner of montana 
And it's kind of similar riding style, but we really wanted to use it as a means of showcasing the vast swaths of public lands in the West and how wild some of those still are. Uh, and so that dictated a lot of just where we put the route exactly yeah. on the ground. And so I think it's 20, I think it's right around 2,700 miles in length. It's about 70% on public lands, mostly BLM and Forest Service lands. And I think if I remember right, it goes through 18 different national forests and wow. about five, I think five different national monuments or parks, um, some a handful of BLM national conservation areas. Uh, so it's it's a really cool route in that respect. It's so so much of it's public land. I think 80% of it almost is dirt, but mostly dirt road and Jeep road, four yeah, by that four, sounds back, awesome. that kind of thing. It's definitely more rugged than the Great Divide route, definitely more remote than the Divide route, but still designed for people that aren't looking for a particularly technical riding experience okay. out there. And it's there's a few sections that go across private property that we've worked with uh, landowners to get approval for. And there's about 120 miles or so in northern Arizona that crosses Navajo Nation. And that was the first uh, basically formally approved recreation, long distance recreation route on their reservation. And that one is a bit sensitive in that it's, if, if there are any complaints whatsoever about bikepackers being out there and not following regulations, not having the permit they need, camping in areas that they're not supposed to, um, that'll definitely jeopardize the, the access that um, we've been granted on their land. And so wow. that's one that um, those, those private lands and the Navajo Nation, which technically is private also, those are areas that if, if racers are going through there and focus more on time than on making sure that they're incredibly respectful of, of the land and the people, um, that that could really have some serious repercussions for the route as a whole. Um, okay. so we're, yeah, we're discouraging people from, from doing any racing. We've had quite a few people, even in like the week after we launched the route, I had people from other countries emailing me and saying, Hey, we'd like to host a race on your route. And so far, everyone's been really respectful of our, our request that, um, they don't do that. Um, and we had a few people that wanted time trial this summer and they also were very respectful of that. So I'm, personally really appreciative of that just given the three years of effort it took to develop that route um, how does that, how does that work i mean you publish a route the information is out there um, yeah and so how, how how you can can you keep someone from holding a race there or no we we are you just asking people um, to respect it just yeah that's know. that's all that we can do and okay. it's yeah i mean like uh, Tour Divide is run on ACA's Great Divide route, and ACA has no involvement in that. Um, same thing with Colorado Trail Race and the Colorado Trail Foundation being completely uninvolved in that event. Mm, and okay. generally, those organizations are fine or even supportive of those events happening, um, but they they have no involvement whatsoever. And so we, yeah, we have no control over. The only the only way I thought you might have some control is just through those permits that you have with the private land or the agreements that you have with private landowners and the Navajo. Yeah, yeah. and they're like one of the landowners did um, ask if we promote racing, and they were happy to hear that we didn't. And um, Navajo Nation, technically, you need special permits to have um, any kind of competitive event or organized event on, on their land. 
and they don't have rules like no more than 74 people like the Forest Service and BLM do or anything like that um, that create some gray area. There's there's no gray area down there. Um, on, and so, yeah, we we don't we don't want to yeah. do anything to to violate any of their regulations. Um, and they're actually even in the, uh, a big swath of the area where the Wild West route does cross Navajo Nation. They just closed a bunch of the backcountry um, areas where canyoneering has been quite possible or been quite popular because um, of trash issues and people having campfires um, out there, which you're not allowed to have campfires anywhere on Navajo Nation. And so those areas, because of people not not following regulations, are now closed to public access, um, right. even with the backcountry permit. So it's yeah, it's it's definitely a, a legitimate issue. And there's the Baja Tide route that um, Nicholas Carmen and Lael mm-hmm. Wilcox created a few years back. They um, Nicholas was really adamant about not wanting people to to race that for a variety of reasons, and people have really respected that in general. There have been a few people that have time trialed it on their own, which is you know the the least impact that somebody yeah. racing but no one has has endeavored to to create an organized event on that one either yeah. so i think well, I, in, I think in, that's in, cool i mean there's lots yeah. of there's lots of bike pa- bike packing races and like i mean we were just talking about they're popping up everywhere um and routes and i mean we live in a great time right now with uh so many route options um mm-hmm. on a personal level the I'm more of a bike tour. I mean, bike packing tour. I don't know. You know, I, I don't do much of the racing, you know, but <laughs> I, I'm much more motivated by getting into public lands and wild places and, and connecting with nature and, you know, just getting, getting out and, and enjoying yeah. it. And so yep. the, the wild, wild rest, what the, I keep saying that. The, <laughs> oh man. Can we rename it please? Uh, the, the wild west route, uh, uh, really, I mean, even before talking to you, but now knowing that it kind of, uh, piques my curiosity even a little bit more, um, for those reasons, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's really an amazing route. You know, I'm, I'm biased, um, obviously <laughs> that, but it, it was one that we, like, we really worked hard to develop the most enjoyable riding experience out there. Like so many, I don't know, just cause you draw a line on a map and go out and ride something and it works out pretty well doesn't mean that it's a great route and it there are so many ways that usually it could be improved and so with our our route development approach at bikepacking routes is really to go out and you know figure out the area we want it to go through and find the best way not just a way to connect through and so a lot of the scouting for that was checking out two or three parallel options for the route and then seeing which ones worked and then how they all fit together in sequence the best um and so there are some areas that like yeah there's definitely a more scenic way to go to the west or to the east of of the main route but it's so rugged and following up on the next section which is also really rugged it would just be a little over the top so really trying to balance um all the different aspects we were going through in terms of a riding experience to to stitch everything together um in the best way we could we could do and so far the feedback has on that route has been really really positive we had about 50 people riding sections of it as trial run last summer to give us feedback and and reach out to people in communities along the way and that sort of thing. And then we were finding the route a bit. And this summer, yeah, there's a few dozen people out there right now. And the the guides that we have for it have been going so quickly. It's I'm kind of shocked at how <laughs> how quickly um all of those have been been disappearing from from our inventory. So that's I think that says a lot about 
yeah the time being right for another another big route like that so i'm really excited to see a lot more folks out on that in the next few years and at some point hopefully i can ride it but we'll see myself <laughs> yeah I, ho- hopefully i'll be able to ride it as well uh <laughs> yeah. well this i mean that's a great segue into bikepacking routes um I think most people probably in bikepacking are familiar with it, but you know, uh, why don't you tell us what bikepacking routes is and, and, and maybe even more importantly, like, where is it? Where, why, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's other organizations. So obviously you're feeling a niche. What, what is bikepacking routes really trying to do? Yeah. So we, the idea came up probably three, three or four years ago. Um, for an organization or like a branch of an existing organization that really was focused on the the off-road touring world or the bikepacking world, um, both through developing really, really high quality routes and through advocating for that community. You know, as it grows, there's more and more need as access issues arise um, to, to make sure that there's someone speaking for that community and someone or an organization working to make sure that landowners see this as a legitimate new user group that is growing quite quickly. Um, so that was, that was a really big priority and supporting the, the growing community in other ways, basically, however, um, maybe possible, you know, adventure cycling has done huge things for, especially the road touring world for God, 50 years now, I think they've Mm -hmm. been around. Um, and they've been so successful with a lot of their advocacy in, uh, things like um, improving safety on routes that go through cities, or they did a really amazing job with advocating for uh, uh, with Amtrak to improve uh, bike access and bike transport on trains right. in U.S. So they've done some really, really good things on the advocacy side for the road touring world, uh, working with state parks in certain areas to develop bike, biker, hiker camp sites along some of their popular routes. But there isn't anyone doing that sort of thing for the bikepacking community as, as we grow dramatically. Yeah. Um, and there really, from, from what we were hearing from folks, was desire for more high-quality routes that are on the, you know, the level of quality of and with the resources like what ACA's Great Divide Mountain Bike Route has or Arizona Trail or things like that, um, okay. both in the, the single-track oriented and in the... Um, the more dirt road side of things. And there, you know, there are plenty of people developing routes on their own and submitting them to different websites um, that some of those are absolutely stellar. And it's really easy for individuals to go out and create a, you know, two or three or four day route. Um, Doesn't take a scouting. And that's, that's something that is really, really uh, possible to do and to do well. One of the bigger challenges oftentimes is the longevity of those and, you know, making sure that someone is paying attention to how things on the ground might change and need to be adjusted um, as, you know, trails get abandoned or unmaintained or closed, um, that sort of thing. So routes that have a, an organization behind them and eyes on the ground and are continually refining routes are yeah. just going to lead to more positive experiences for riders. Yeah. Um, okay. I like that. Sure. So, yeah, that, that was a big goal. Um, and then also trying to work to build the bikepacking community's voice in conservation issues and helping protect the and conserve the places through which we ride. Because so many of us and the surveying that we've done in the bikepacking community survey last year um, really highlighted that the desires of bikepackers and the reasons that so many of us are out there are definitely different from stereotypical mountain bikers. 
Um, mm-hmm. We have much more interest in being in wild places, in um, the experience that that provides. Uh, there's much less uh, emphasis on, you know, kind of the the endorphin or adrenaline driven side of things. Yeah. Um, and our interests in as a community as a whole, and this is based on on the surveying, so this definitely doesn't apply to everybody, but as a whole, um, are much much more aligned with that of the average backpacker than yeah. bike. Or, yeah, sorry, then, it's camping like, with your is camping with your bike. Yeah, and it was really cool at a um uh when I guess it was just last year we were invited to speak at the National Equestrian Conference, which was super cool to have that that opportunity yeah. as a very different user group. And did they reach out to you? Yes. Yep. They wow. did. They were trying to get different user groups to be part of their conference that year. That's good to hear. And have it a, a pretty collaborative um, experience of just getting to know one another and like why why we were all out there yeah and good how we could together in in different issues well that's a perfect and, re- that is why we need bikepacking roots yeah Just, exactly I mean, no let, no one else let, is doing that sort of thing. there's no they we need somebody that someone can call and say okay what what are you guys doing out there i mean what is this you know i mean we need that so yeah that's important yeah and, and what was super cool from that experience was we, we shared some of the um, results of that surveying, but we, we did it in a very um, experiential way with, you know, trying to first ask the audience, which was almost in, entirely equestrians, what it is that gets them out on the trail and the experience mm-hmm. they're looking for. And we, we offered the same um, kind of criteria, same, same options as we did in the surveying to, to bikepackers. Okay. And we, we heard what they said and then showed what bikepackers responded and it was almost entirely identical yeah, so not surprised by that. that was really eye-opening for the audience that the reasons that bike packers are out there are exactly the same reasons yeah in general that, well that is that, something i preach is like it's we're all doing the same thing um it's just a different method of getting there right you can walk you yeah. can hike you can ride your bike you can run you can get on a horse i mean we're the reasons we're doing it are all the same. It's just the vehicle or, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, the method of transportation is the thing that is different, but we're all, I love, I'm, I'm just really excited about this because I am passionate about public lands and, uh, and advocating for them and making sure that bike packing has a place. Um, and, and to have an organization that is, has a seat at the table that is representing me and other people and having those good collaborative experiences and, 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 you know, uh, just kind of all working together, man, we're all on the same team. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a big goal for us. And in, in the advocacy side, like we're obviously a young organization and still working on, on building that out, but we've got a whole suite of regional advisors across the country that help, you know, one of the things that, that we hope that they can, do is be be ears in the ground for access issues and public lands issues in their particular region and feed that to us um, so that we can evaluate whether that's something that we want to get involved with. Um, and so we've we've been able to lend uh, lend support or be be a voice for bike packers in God most most regions of the country so far in a variety of different issues um, in the past couple of years from you know national monument issues in. Uh, the the Utah area with Bears Ears and Grand Staircase mm-hmm. Escalante to uh, some more national forest specific stuff in uh, Texas in one area and in Montana with some of the uh, what is it up there's wilderness study area access issues for bikes um, 
And so we've been really working to also grow our membership. We've got a little over 4,000 members at this point. And it's one of those those areas that the the larger the membership, the stronger your voice is and right. the more, more influential it can be in those sorts of conversations, whether it's um, working with public lands managers or reaching out to communities and uh, that might be along popular bike packing routes and trying to work with them to develop better services for bike packers or things like that along the way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it really is one of those things that the more, uh, the more folks we have involved in behind us, the more effective we can be at, at trying to advocate for, for that, for the community. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been a really probably the most rewarding part of this so far. And it's also the most challenging part and the most thankless part that people like advocacy just doesn't doesn't make people excited in most cases. I'm excited. And it, well, you're probably one of the exceptions to that that general well, rule. But yeah, it, like it when, probably when needs to be information, you know. I think I think stuff like this is good having this type of conversation, letting people know what you're really doing. Um, you know, like how it's really going to impact them. Uh, I think, I think once people understand how those things tie together in this land, I mean, we, we were fortunate that we grew up in America and that, uh, you know, we had Roosevelt that set aside these lands and, uh, we've, we, we need to continue to protect them. You know, they're not, yeah. we're so fortunate that we have this public land, but if we don't, if we don't actively, um, you know, fight for it and protect it and, and even use it in a responsible way, you know, I, I, I'm scared that it'll be taken away. I mean, I, I think we've seen that yeah. happen. So, um, we need to be aware yeah. of this and, and we need to be fighting for it. Yeah. And what we have here, um, in the U S and to a slightly lesser extent, Canada is unparalleled anywhere else in the world in terms of the expanses of public lands, the access to those lands, um, and the protections that a lot of those have, um, various levels of protection from the government or in <laughs> theoretical guarantees that they'll stay within the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look now at the, the new BLM director we have, um, interim, hopefully in theory, but he's, so Bureau of Land Management manages the more land in the West than any other agency than the Forest Service does. Um, and the, those lands are basically the leftovers of everything that wasn't claimed by settlers um, or wasn't given away to railway companies or to states or anything like that as okay. as the U.S. expanded west and pushed the Native Americans aside and or killed them off, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so those lands that were looked over that were never actually claimed and weren't set aside as forest reserves or national forests ultimately became managed by the... Um, newly formed BLM got in the 1960s, I guess, instead of those being held by the general land office, basically for sale. Um, and it wasn't until the 1970s, the late 1970s, actually, that the federal government officially announced or decided that BLM lands would continue to be federal and no longer were set aside for disposal to whoever wanted them. Um, so we got really lucky in that sense that all, all those lands were preserved in that sense. But now we have a, a director of the BLM who says that uh, and has argued in articles in um, publications in the last few years that the federal government can't legally actually own land unless it's for like hospitals or military installations or things like that. And so it's actually illegal what? for the government onto BLM lands and Forest Service lands. 
So yeah, he's now in charge of the BLM and believes that states should be the ones that should be managing all of these lands. And states simply oh. don't have the resources. Most, I mean, the, the lands that most states have were given to the states, or I should say Western states. Um, it's a little bit of a different story in the Midwest and South and the East, but um, those lands were given to the states by the federal government as ways to generate revenue for the states, for schools or hospitals or things like that. Right. And so the management of state lands is for profit um, in yes. a lot of states yeah. for the greater, for, as well as Gifford Pinshaw said, for the greatest good of the greatest number of people, which was the, the forest, forest service. Excellent quote. Uh, Excellent quote, sir. Quote yeah. game is strong. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's, there are faces, there are issues that we're facing with public lands that are so much bigger than uh, any individual user group or organization can, um, can tackle. And yeah. so it's to be part of a much bigger voice and to be able to engage more people, like even if it's, you know, if we can get a hundred more comments on a particular issue um, from the bikepacking community that wouldn't have been there otherwise, that's a step in the right direction. And if we can keep continuing to grow that side of things and generate more influence, um, that's only going to have a positive impact. And, you know, oh, IMBAs yeah. definitely do really positive things in that realm. They're not as focused on um, backcountry access as um, I would like them to be but in in reality that's their um their membership are mostly front country mountain bikers mm -hmm. so it makes sense it can have the biggest impact and affect positively the most number of people by focusing their energy on that so yeah. um fortunately they are involved in a number of wilderness and wilderness study area issues and with the recent um commenting on the changes to nepa the national environmental protection act um or not changes but procedural evolutions i guess that the forest <laughs> service is proposing Imbo is also really good about promoting that um, yeah. and trying to get folks to comment on that since that does affect all public land users potentially. So um, well, the yeah, truth I mean, is, is like I'm I'm out of my I'm very grateful that there's a person or an organization, uh, you know, there's a person like you leading an or organization like Bikepacking Roots that is keeping abreast of all this stuff because you know, truthfully, we're just, you know, people are busy and there's a lot of things vying for our attention and I, I am uh, I'm passionate and I care about the outdoors, but I'm also not, um, writing my congressman. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's, oh, it's yeah, it's, it's so hard to stay on top of so much of that. Right. And yeah. so if, yeah, one of the things that we've been trying to do is bring, bring the key issues that we want people to be engaged in to, to our membership's attention, to the community's attention and give folks some, you know, basic bullet point talking points that they can yeah. paraphrase and put in their own unique words. But like, here's, what you can say that will be helpful, hopefully. Right. right. Um, yeah. No, those, those are helpful. That, That's what I'm saying. It's like, you're, you're kind of doing all the hard work and then di putting it down in a digestible format and sending out on a newsletter and saying, okay, this is what, this is what we're facing and why, and here's what you can do. Yep. That's our, that's our goal. And then we also, um, on our website, on the advocacy section, we've got a form that, folks can fill out if if you know of any particular issue in your region or a place you've been riding that um, affects the bikepacking community in some way let us know and Good. we can look into that I, that was one got, of my questions yeah but yeah um so we have got a part part of our uh we've got a committee that basically looks at each of those those submissions or um advocacy areas um and decides if that's something that we want to engage in 
if it's just, kind of within our ability and if, if we're going to have a, right. a positive impact on that and if our voice will make a difference, then yeah, we'll engage. Cool. Well, how has the response been? You said you have about 4,000 members. I don't know how, um, are, are y'all pretty happy with, with that response? Yeah, I know you just had I mean, a membership drive too, so maybe that was pretty yep. successful. I mean, maybe we could talk about yep. what that looks like. Yeah, that was really successful. Like that was basically, you know, we weren't trying to raise funds. We are a nonprofit, so support from from our members definitely is is crucial for um, our operating budget, which we're also mostly volunteer based. I'm the only one that gets any salary, and it's a pittance um, at this point. <laughs> and so it's mostly passion from. I don't know how many we've got. Probably. 15 people regularly or like engaged in what we're doing and supporting us. And then a bunch more volunteers that, that are much more um, just like a little bit here and there. Yeah. So our, we've been, been shocked at how quickly um, things have grown and yeah. how, like I mentioned with the wild west root reception, it's been absolutely massive. The press coverage from that, from, I mean, like REI was interested in covering it and, you know, some pretty, um, pretty notable uh, publications wanted to learn more about it and, and share so it's what we're doing is definitely having an impact. Um, and it's absolutely amazing when, you know, I can walk in somewhere in some town I've never been in, have a bike packing roots hat on and someone comes up and like, Hey, where'd you get that hat? And knows all about it. Um, that, that means that, that we're at least doing some, some things right. Yeah. Um, and I think if we're able to continue on this trajectory within, geez, another couple of years, will our membership will be pretty, pretty dang substantial. And, our hopefully our impact is just going to continue to grow where we've got yeah. a budget to hire a few contract um, type positions uh, later this year, early next year to help out in the advocacy realm and in a couple other areas. And so that's, you know, being able to actually bring people on board and pay them something is another big step forward. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm thrilled at how, how things have been going so far. Yeah. From an outsider's perspective, I've, I've been impressed. I mean, it seems I mean, just a really well-run organization doing good things. Um, give 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 my listeners uh, a directive. Like, what can we do? I mean, you have a, a great organization, and you're trying to get us all together. So, what is the main thing that we, as um, you know, advocates in our own way, and and bike, uh, you know, cyclists and adventurers, like, what can what can we do to maybe help yeah, y'all and support y'all? And ultimately support, you know, bikepacking. Yeah. So let me, let me just start with the, the last part of that. What can, what can everyone do to support bikepacking itself and the bikepacking community in, in their own way? Um, I think there's a few key things that folks can do that one is just simply be engaged in conversations that affect the bikepacking community in terms of access and public lands. And that can look like submitting comments. And, you know, these comments usually take five or 10 minutes to submit um, when there's there's something notable that, that we bring to the community's attention or that IMBA does or, you know, some other organization. And so be engaged in that. Your voice actually does matter to some extent in that. Depends on what the issue is and whether it's coming from like presidential proclamation or something much lower. Um, but yeah, be engaged in that. Make sure you vote in elections you know a lot of these issues that we're dealing with operate on both short time scales in terms of like decisions within a particular forest and longer time scales with you know who's in congress and the senate and what are their opinions on public lands and the role that those play in the economics of the west in recreation in conservation and all that so yeah. be engaged make your voice heard 
contribute a little bit of time to that and make sure you vote. Um, and then on a more day-to-day -day scale, if you're out bikepacking or you're out riding on a trail, be the most respectful you can be to all the other trail users and, you know, leave them with a really positive impression of the person they just saw on a bike that's loaded down with all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah. they might not know much about bikepacking, but if you are a really friendly person that interacts really respectfully and is legitimately curious about what they're doing and share a little bit about what you're doing, that's going to leave a, a positive impact. Yeah negative impressions last so much longer. And so, you know, if you tearing down a trail and just about hit somebody cause you're going so fast and, you know, say sorry and continue on, like that's going to leave a much longer lasting impression, unfortunately, than a much longer, more positive interaction might be. So yeah. do, do what you can, um, in I think those it's settings, a whole, you know, uh, in my experience and I'm sure yours, like it's, you know, doing the podcast has really been eye opening because I'm talking to people I've never met before. Um, you know, mm -hmm. usually, and, but it, there's no shortage of really quality human beings that are living in intentional lives that, you know, are, are just good people, you know? So yep. hopefully that comes naturally, but I, I think it's, it's worth noting that, you know, individually we are representing a larger community and one that I think is still in its infancy to some extent. Like, I mean, you are really mm -hmm. helping to formalize uh, I mean, you have bikepacking.com and some other stuff that, that are, are, I mean, great resources that really bring and help to build a community, which is important. But, you know, you have bikepacking roots that is uh, protecting the community and advocating for the community. And um, I forgot exactly what I was going to say, but <laughs> it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's something that everybody, like, we don't need to be the only ones doing that, that um, individuals can do that in their own ways and be even more influential in the day to day. Um, sense actually out right. on the ground. Yeah, you can champion the cause. I mean, you can be the leader, you can be the champion, you can be showing people how to do it, but without the community supporting y'all, without them doing your questionnaires or, you know, um, uh, uh, signing a petition or whatever you're going to ask us to do, um, you, you're, you're really not in a great position. You need everyone yeah. to, to be a part of it, you know, so you can't just sit back yep. and let Kurt Completely. do the whole thing. Well, Kurt and your team, well I know, said. I know there's a well, uh, well a, a large team behind you. Yeah. We got a bunch of folks. We got an amazing board of directors out there, um, all over the country that have contributed so much so far. So yeah, yeah there it's, it's way more than just me. Well, um, listen, man, I, yeah, and then, Oh, sorry. Oh, I do not. Two other, yeah. Two, yeah. Two other things that people can do. One, um, that can also be really positive is just if you're out riding on public lands and happen to run into a forest service or BLM or state park employee, um, stop and talk to them, tell them what you're doing, tell them where you're going. The mm. more visibility that we as a community have with land managers, the better, the more they know we're out here and where we're going and where we're riding, the better. So that's something else that can yeah. be helpful in a small way. And then finally, from supporting bikepacking routes, become a member. If you're not already, it's free. Um, and you really, your voice does, does help our organization and we want to help you. Um, if you can donate to support what we're doing, that's also fantastic. That that helps further our mission, helps with our just behind the scenes operating costs and engaging in different things. Yeah. Um, and what else? There's one. Oh, uh, on our website right now, we're doing a, a survey on it's kind of like a partial economic impact study on what spending habits of bike packers are when you're out on well, yeah. on trips. Yeah, that's and a survey yeah. will take maybe five to ten minutes. There's virtually no data out there for bike packers and what kind of economic impact, um, we can have on communities. Yeah. And so that's something that we're trying 
to generate at this point. And this is a first, the first part of a, a much bigger um, investigation on on that. So if you can take five or ten minutes and share a bit about um, how you spend money on these trips, that would be absolutely fantastic. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'll echo that. Please do all those things. And one thing that, um, you know, I don't, I'll let you speak to this, but for me, me I, I have people that contribute to the show. I don't have any, you know, sponsors or advertising or anything like that. It's all listener supported. And yep. I, I tell mm-hmm. people, I'm like, I don't care if all you can give is a dollar a month, you know, I mean, just, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's like your vote. I always think it's like you're voting with your dollars, you know, it's like, okay, this is something I believe in. I'm going to give you a dollar a month. I mean, yeah. And every, and every little bit does matter. Take, take Bernie Sanders approach that, you know, 30,000 small donations adds up to a lot of money. And I would be a a fairly, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have 4,000 members and each one give a dollar a month, I mean, that's 4,000 a month. You're at, 4,800 a year. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a start, you know? <laughs> no, uh, 48,000 48, a year. Oh, that's what I meant. Forty. Yeah, sorry, did I say 100? Yeah. Yeah, 48,000 yeah, 48, a year. <laughs> yeah. No, so that's, you know, that's that's the kind of um, kind of generosity that can make a big difference, even if it's only a dollar a month. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the thing is I don't, I don't want to make this to be a grandiose and outer reach type thing. I mean, we're talking about some big ideas and some really important things, but what you're asking from members of the community is, is not great. I mean, you are carrying the lion's share and you just need us to kind of follow what you're doing, uh, keep up with it, fill out some surveys and, you know, donate, join the, join bikepacking route to be a member, uh, support it. I mean, you guys are supporting us. You're fighting and advocating for us. Um, and, and you're doing it based on, uh, it's it's not like you're doing it in an echo chamber. I mean, you did a, a, a massive, uh, you know, uh, questionnaire um, uh, that was really detailed. And then you take that information and you apply it. You say, okay, well, these are the things that uh, the, the community believes in. It's what's important to them. And so th- that's going to be the foundation for how you approach yeah, com- situations. Completely. Yeah, the, the survey you're talking about, the bikepacking community survey we did last last year, I guess. And we yeah. actually had one a few years before that, before we actually formally launched as an organization. Um, yeah, there were a lot of questions about the experience that folks are, that, that you all as bikepackers want out there, um, and that you're seeking and questions about attitudes toward public land, toward wilderness, things like that. And yeah, the responses of those, they go directly into our advocacy conversations and helping to characterize, um, just who bikepackers are and the experience that you're looking for. And when we're talking to land managers or trail organizations or communities, like that's powerful stuff. And that's, that's stuff that we need to need to have to be able to accurately demonstrate, um, who we as a community are. So yeah, anytime that we have some kind of a survey like that, it's not like we're trying to learn more about you so we can better ask how to get, um, get donations from you or something (laughs) like that. Um, like that's, that is something that we want to be able to know, but it's, you know, the main emphasis is on, being able to better advocate for for you all as as a user group. Yeah, well, man, that's awesome. I I'm a big fan of bikepacking routes, and uh, <laughs> d- dude, the whole the the truth is like I I've got a long list of questions, and we are short on time. But um, you are not <laughs> the kind of person that you can like talk to in an hour and a half for a couple hours and and get everything. I mean, it's just impossible. So I'm going to apologize right now for 
all the things we <laughs> no, didn't talk about and we'll just have to do another one one day. So no problem, right? I'd be happy to at some point down the line. Yeah. Well, bef- before I, uh, you go, I want to just ask you a fun question. Um, all right. In 2012, uh, Reveal the Path came out, uh, which is a video that um, I watched quite a few times and I still have it on my Amazon. And so I actually rewatched it yesterday just for fun. Um, and (laughs) the, the one scene in that, that really like stood out was when you broke or no, you dislocated your finger and dude, I mean, you were so calm and like dismissive. So the question (laughs) is how much of that for the, was for the camera and how much of that is you're just a badass tough guy. Oh, I, I think the latter. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I definitely wasn't, wasn't at all focused on the camera at that point. Um, yeah, it was, it was more like, damn, did I actually break my wrist? Cause with the, the finger being dislocated, I had pulled the tendon or ligaments so tight that my wrist was bent at like 90 degrees and I couldn't yeah. straighten it, it really oh. hurt. And so like, damn, is this actually like broken wrist or what, what's going on here? And so, yeah, it was one of those, you're in a foreign country and we're in Scotland. So it's, you know, not that, uh, that different in a lot of ways from, from the U S and just getting medical care and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, how upset you get with something like that. It's not going to change anything. Mm -hmm. And so that that sort of attitude has really been refined through my racing and emphasized through my racing for years now, but it carries over into daily life that, well, yeah, you got to deal with it. So let's just figure out what to do moving forward and, and go that route. And so it's another thing. It's like a, a slice in your tire. It's a, you know, you're going to get hurt yeah. every once in a while. You just, okay, this is what I got to deal with. Yep. Let's, let's do that. Yep. So I don't think it makes me a badass in any way. Just... <laughs> well, uh, to well, continue that story, well, you, you continued on the trip. Matthew Lee was like, well, you're not riding anymore. And you're like, no, the doctor said I, I can go. So I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I did. I don't think I rode anymore on that. Uh, that trip in Scotland. But yeah, once we got, um, I actually had a couple day, a couple more days to recover cause I had a geology conference to go to oh, in okay. Swiss. And so they went and did a little bit of riding and I spent a few days at a conference and gave a couple talks and then met back up with them to continue pedaling in Morocco, I guess oh. it was after that. So okay. yeah, it so was, you, it was great. You got to rest a little bit. Have, yep. And I did have the official okay from the doctor that as long as the pain wasn't too concerning that it was yeah. okay to keep pedaling. So. Yeah. Well, I remember watching it. Uh, every time I see that scene, I'm like, I mean, it just looks <laughs> painful. And I and every time the look on your face, your mannerisms, uh, your body language, <laughs> I mean, just very, very calm, like not really bothered by the situation much. Just analyze. You were like looking at it and analyzing it. I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot that was going on that what didn't make the camera. So maybe you were crying at one point, but <laughs> at least they made you look really good. <laughs> good to hear (laughs) no (laughs) all right man well uh truly uh thank you thank you for taking the time and being an inspiration i mean uh what you're doing in like your race career is extremely inspirational to watch and it's fun and it's entertaining um and it's mesmerizing like how how um you know and then and then you know for creating bikepacking routes uh to to advocate and to formalize you know, what bikepacking is and help educate, um, public land managers and, and, you know, all those people that we talked about, I mean, th- that cannot be understated. So, um, yeah, thank you for all your contrib- contributions to the community. It, it does not go unnoticed. 
Oh, well, thank you for those kind words. Um, yeah, it always, always means a lot to hear that. Um, and thanks for the, the opportunity to talk and hopefully we can sometime farther down the road, um, about some other topics too. I would love to, but next time I want to go for a ride with you and then, and then we'll talk. All right. We'll have to, we'll cross paths. Somewhere. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Have a great day. Uh, you're going on a bike packing trip, aren't you? I am. Yeah. I'm going to head out just for, uh, two, two days or so. I haven't actually ridden for more than a few hours at a time since the Colorado trail race ended a few weeks ago. So this will be a little bit of a test, but it's Sweet. looking nice and pleasant and sunny in the mountains east of northeast of Gunnison. And so I'm going to go ride a little bit up there, do a little bit of scouting for a section of a new route that we're working on um, that passes through that area and ride a, some of um, Hefe Brenham's Loopy Loop trails that he's linked together for a, a fun event that he puts on that I think is just this weekend. Um, so, yeah, a cool. couple, couple reasons I want to get out up in that That's area. Great, man. So well, be- have a good trip. We'll send you on your way, and uh, yeah, look forward to talking talking with you again. All right. Sounds All right. great, Patrick. Thanks so much. All right, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that. I think you can tell that by the end of the show, I was getting really pumped up about everything that's going on at Bikepacking Roots, um, and I'm just going to make an, a, a personal appeal to you. Please go and set up a membership if you haven't already. Fill out their questionnaires. Um, you know, just be be involved. Uh, the things that they are trying to accomplish are vitally important and they can't do anything if they don't have our support as a community. And if we want good access and good relationships with public lands, um, we need an organization like that that is representing us and helping us to fight to, to keep or to gain new access or whatever it may be. So, I mean, the truth is, is like they're doing all the hard work. They're staying on top of issues that we need to be aware of. They're coordinating with people to give us access. They're they're doing all of the work. All we have to do is fill out some stuff online, join their membership, let our voice be heard and let and and give them the numbers and the support that they need to do their job. So I don't know what else I can say about that. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Hopefully you uh, feel compelled to get involved and help to uh, fight for and protect our public lands for bikepacking access. All right, and if you have been living under a rock and you haven't heard the exciting news, I am going to be at the Bikepacking Summit this year. That is going to be from October 4th through 6th at Mulberry Gap Mountain Bike Getaway in Elijah, Georgia. They've offered me the opportunity to be a ride leader on Thursday night, uh, and of course I accepted. And they sent me over a list of options of routes. So it looks like they're going to have four different routes, four different ride leaders. And they gave me first pick. Um, and I picked the hardest one. <laughs> so, uh, But I don't think it's going to be too challenging. I'll tell you a little bit about the route. It's 15.5 miles. It's going to be about 2,400 feet of elevation gain and 2,200 feet of descending uh, they estimate it's like an hour and a half, two hour ride, not too bad. There's going to be four and a half miles of gravel climb, a fun and scenic single track descent on BC, that's Bear Creek, and a climby single track on Pinote. Oh man, I hope I say that right. Pin, Pinote one and uh, flowy gravel finish to the camp campground. So uh, I don't know the exact format. I don't know if I'm, I get to kind of lead the pace or how that's gonna all work out. But uh, more importantly, I'm gonna be out there riding my bike, having fun, and hopefully meeting some of y'all. So uh, if that sounds like a good time and you wanna come 
hang out, ride bikes, and enjoy all the other presentations that are going to be going on and the sweet facilities that they have there at Mulberry Gap, uh, head over to bikepackingsummit.com, get registered, and get ready to party and ride bikes. It's going to be a good time. Hope to see you there. All right. Well, like I said on the beginning of the show, um, again, I am very, very grateful for everybody who is and has been supporting the show, even just listening. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering of people that listen to the show from all over the world. And uh, I'm truly grateful. Um, if you want to sh- support the show, I try to make it very easy. I have lots of options. Um, I just set up a new one. First of all, you can find everything at my website at bikesordeath.com. So if you don't want to listen to me ramble, you can just head over there and pick your favorite. But uh, I'm going to rattle through them really quick because I'm going to be honest, time is short. We are heading out on a uh, bikepacking trip in West Virginia uh, in a few days, and I just got a new bike, and I got to just like get my poop in a group. I got to get everything together and ready. And anyway, I, but I want to get this podcast out before I go. Um so anyway, if you want to support the show, here's how you do it. Uh, you go to my website, and uh, the easiest way is through the Amazon affiliate link. All you have to do is click it, bookmark it, and use it every time that you shop online. And every time you do, I'm going to get a little cut. Uh, so far, I am up to $102.30, which is sweet. I appreciate that. So I think that's uh, – I, I think I, I love this option because – it really is super easy. And if there was like, I know a lot of people shop on Amazon. So if like a bunch of people are using it, it doesn't cost you any money. I'm getting a little kickback and everybody's happy. So I really do like to push that as being a really easy way to support the show. Um, Another one that I just launched is the PayPal donate button on my website. And some people have definitely taken advantage of that. And I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. yeah, I, I like this idea because, you know, if, if there's a show that you like and you, or if there's an episode that you like that you thought was really good or you just, I don't know, got a bonus and you want to just kick a couple dollars my way and say thank you. Uh, one gentleman uh, sent me 10 bucks and he said, hey, man, appreciate everything you're doing and uh, enjoy a couple beers on me. And I will. Thank you. Um, actually, it's probably going to be whiskey, but, you know, we're splitting hairs. So yeah, that's a that's an easy way. One time, whenever you feel like it, whenever you got some extra cash or you think that an episode was good, uh, you can use that donate button to just throw a few bucks my way. Um, and then if you want to step up to the next level, that's Patreon. It's a monthly donation that you commit commit to. Anywhere from $1 up to a million dollars a month, you get to pick. So I'm super appreciative of all my patrons that uh, contribute monthly, um, whether it's a dollar or $10 or whatever it is that you can give. Uh, it is really, um, yeah, it's nice. I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it. I mean, I really do appreciate that, that uh, you see the value and you feel confident you want to support the show. Um Okay, and the last way that you can support the show is just through buying some sweet Bikes or Death merchandise. Uh, if you head over to the website, it's bikesordeath.com forward slash store. You can find stickers, patches, and I am happy to announce that shirts have been ordered. They have been shipped and on their way to me. So I'm going to get that up on the website so people can go ahead and start ordering them. Uh, so yeah. Check back to the website, uh, follow social media for any announcements on that, but I'm going to be getting that up on the website ASAP and then getting some shirts out to you lovely people. All right, that's it again. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your support. 25 episodes in like 11 months. Uh, 
it's all because of you. I would definitely not be putting this much time and energy into it if it wasn't from all the support, the love, the messages, and everything that y'all uh, do to support support the show. So um, thank you. Keep it up. Let's keep it going and keep it growing. All right, listen, people. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of bike, what kind of bags, where you like to ride or how you like to ride. The only thing that matters is that you ride your damn bike. Bye.